The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It has been more challenging for them to retain poll workers just because of how controversial the election process has gotten. And when you have all of these rapidly changing rules and discussion about how elections are run, it's discouraging poll workers from from coming back or from staying involved, specifically in that state, but, but in others as well. Anecdotal research or anecdotal reports from election offices have, have also reported that the nature of the increase of threats to election workers and temporary election workers has also discouraged poll workers from, from coming back and, and supporting elections just because it is so volatile. And I think people are, are rightfully afraid that if they come and they, they are a poll worker and something happens that they could be you know, put on the national spotlight and, and vilified like we have seen done so many times with, with the individuals at the forefront of our, of our democracy. I'm Tyler McBrien. Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 25th, 2022. In two weeks, millions of Americans will head to the polls for the 2022 midterm election. During that time, an estimated 1 million poll workers will help administer the election and ensure the process runs safely and smoothly. Ahead of the midterms, I sat down with Rachel Ori, Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center Elections Project, and Grace Gordon, a policy analyst on the project, to talk through their latest report, Fortifying Election Security Through Poll Worker Policy. We discussed how elections are fundamentally a human enterprise, why poll workers are so important, and how states can better safeguard against efforts to use poll workers to undermine election credibility. We also got into how to become a poll worker for any listener looking to fulfill a civic duty. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 25th, why poll worker policies are crucial for functioning elections. So there's been a lot of focus in the media, especially on both election technology in terms of voting machines and and methods of voting, you know, mail-in versus in-person voting. Uh, But your new report focuses on the human side. As you write, elections are a human enterprise. They rely on individuals conducting their job with integrity to function. So I want to ask why you focused on the human side, on election workers, why they're so important to elections. And Rachel, I'll start with you. So going into the 2020 election, the primary focus was on mail voting. As we had, were trying to run a record-breaking turnout election in the middle of a global pandemic, we were focused a lot on the actual infrastructure that went into running elections. But as we're heading into this midterm election this November, the nature of the risk to our election system is a little bit different. We are seeing more and more efforts by election denial organizations and individuals to recruit and train temporary election workers, typically referred to as poll workers, to subvert election operations to fuel this kind of lie that the 2020 election was illegitimate. 
Great. And, and I want to, you know, dig into some of those threats and some of the safeguards as well. But first, I wanted to take it, you know, just to just to get the the nuts and bolts down. Let's say I wanted to be a poll worker. What method or, or how would I go about doing that? Grace, we can go to you for this one. Sure. Uh, so to be a poll worker, it really varies state by state. But the terminology for for poll workers or individuals who are working at the polls, um, some some states call them temporary election workers, election judges, precinct officials. But these are the individuals who are setting up polling places, checking in voters at the polls, um, assisting anyone in the voting process and supporting in the counting of ballots. Um, so if you want to do this, um, you typically need to uh, get in touch with your, your local election official. These roles uh, play play a fundamental role in, in elections, and we see them at the, at the local level working sort of on the ground. So these are the people interacting directly with voters. And there's always a need for these for these individuals. I think that we've seen um, poll worker shortages, um, not just in the, the 2020 election because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but over time we've seen we've seen election offices having difficulty recruiting these these workers. Um, but if, if you were to be a poll worker, Tyler, you would want to we'd want you to get in touch with your your local election official. And what's the scale we're talking about here? Say I, I successfully joined the ranks of the poll workers across the country. You know, how many fellow poll workers are there? So across the country, there are, I think that the Election Assistance Commission has counted over 700,000 poll workers. So it's a massive, massive enterprise. And you know, I think that number fluctuates based on the policies in each, in each state. For example, um, states like Washington and Oregon, they conduct all of their elections by mail, which means that uh, they don't have polling places and, and don't need poll workers necessarily. However, they do have temporary election workers um, who conduct similar functions for, for distributing and then counting all of those mail ballots. And Rachel, you know, when did when did the alarm bells start to raise for you at the Bipartisan Policy Center? I saw earlier this month the center released a statement condemning, you know, any efforts to to interfere with elections through interference with, with poll workers. What motivated this report looking into this threat? We've been thinking about this issue really since 2020, initially looking specifically at election observers. So poll workers and temporary election workers are those who are actually involved in the running of elections. Observers or poll watchers are, are kind of those outside actors that are there to ensure transparency and an accountability. In 2020, that was where the primary issue was with uh, outside individuals trying to interfere with the voting process. Since then, we've heard increasing concerns shared by the election officials that we work with on a regular basis that we are seeing the threat come more and more from the inside. At the same time, we wanted to highlight the fact that there are protections in place to make sure that these individuals cannot interfere with elections to the point that results do not adequately reflect who won the election. In all of the instances of a temporary election worker interfering election with elections that have surfaced so far, that individual has been identified and prosecuted. We had an instance during the Michigan primary, which has really been 
an epicenter of a lot of these election conspiracy campaigns. But during the Michigan primary, a temporary election worker, a poll worker who believed a lot of these uh, false elections claims, he inserted a, a personal USB drive into the electronic poll book, which is the computer essentially that stores all of the voter roles, the voter information, which includes personal private information. And that individual was, was quickly identified and he was ultimately charged with uh, tampering with voting equipment. So this shows that even when there are these, these small fringe insider threats, there are also protections in place and, and we have more reasons to trust than not to trust the results of our elections. Yeah, let's get into some of those protections. Obviously, you know, because you wrote this report, there are certainly gaps and, and room for improvement, and we'll get into that. But I'm wondering if you could dig into some of those protections that are already in place. And then maybe if you could speak to how some of those protections are distributed across the country, because as you've well brought up, election administration and election security can vary quite a bit state by state. We thought to emphasize the protections that are in place protecting our election system against insider threats in this report. As you mentioned, we did this in kind of a, a two-step way. We first released a statement earlier this month that was unanimously endorsed by our task force of election officials condemning any use of temporary election workers for partisan means. And then we followed that up with a 50-state data set looking into what policies and practices are currently in place to protect our election administration system. We narrowed in on a couple in particular, the most important one being temporary election worker training. Quality training is essential to making sure our elections run with integrity and professionalism. Uh, only a few states have no mandated training requirements. But even those states offer training modules and most localities go above and beyond minimum requirements. So at a national level, we do pretty good when it comes to election worker training. Of course, there are ways we can improve there. Most importantly, election offices need more resources to be able to run training uh, as best as they could. Sometimes when training falls to local election offices alone, they end up having to sacrifice the number of hours or quality of information covered because they simply don't have the resources to compensate local election workers for the time that they have to spend in training. Another important protection is codes of conduct and oaths of office. Uh, many states require temporary election workers to take an oath before beginning their duties. Uh, we found this to be a really foundational element of holding public employees accountable to upholding the word of the law and the integrity behind our election administration system. Uh, one other thing is partisan parity. So this is a, a just a fancy word for saying that we need to have balance in the partisan breakdown of our temporary election workers. This is easier said than done as the American public tends to isolate itself in, in geographic areas by partisan breakdown so that there are some jurisdictions that are quite heavily Democrat, some quite heavily Republican, uh, but the vast majority of states strive to have balance in the number of Democratic and Republican poll workers. And then the final important piece of this is how temporary election workers who are not fulfilling their duties, who are violating their oaths of office, how they are removed from office. In this area in particular, I think that we need additional clarification on at the state level. Because right now it is quite vague 
And typically it devolves down to the local level to set rules for how temporary election workers are removed. Um, and this becomes challenging when you're at a polling place on election day, everything is going on um, and someone is not following the rule of the law. And then it comes down to that local official or even the local individual in charge of that specific polling place to try and figure out, you know, what is the right thing to do when it comes to dismissing an unruly poll worker? Uh, and we think additional clarification and guidance from the state would be really helpful in, in closing that gap and providing clarity so that any issues can be resolved quickly as they happen while voting is taking place. Yeah. And, and I think one thing your report does well is, is to point out that, you know, this isn't to raise doubts or call into question the security of our elections, just to point out that there's, like I said, room for improvement. Other than the Michigan primary incident that you mentioned, were there any other incidents with poll workers that, that raised alarms or that, that served as teaching lessons for, for further improvement? So we did a, a substantial sort of um, survey of, of any instances where poll workers or election workers in general might have you know been prosecuted. And I think that overwhelmingly, we see that poll workers are not looking to break the rules. Um, I think the other example that we drew on was the um, Mesa County, Colorado clerk who was indicted in March on 10 counts, including charges of attempting to influence a public servant, as well as criminal impersonation. But with all of these examples, I think that we've found that they have been identified very quickly. And our uh, Bipartisan Policy Center Task Force on Elections, which is um, a group of uh, election officials across the country, you know, from from across the political spectrum at both the state and the local level. All of the individuals on our task force said that, you know, they really trust their poll workers and they have not in the you know numerous years that they've served seen uh, very many instances of temporary election workers who are looking to undermine election security or public trust. Yeah, and Rachel, I want to get back to something that you mentioned. Uh, I want to get into some of the partisanship or polarization aspects of this. Um, you mentioned that some states or, or many states require partisan parity among election workers. Why is this important, or why is this you know a good protection to have for election tampering? You know, especially given, as you mentioned, that the often you know geographically isolated nature of the parties today. Yeah, so 47 states we found strive for partisan parity when hiring election workers. That means that whenever possible, election officials should prioritize having that even balance in the partisan breakdown of their election workers. And bipartisan involvement is critical in making sure that regardless of whichever party is in power, whichever party is like trying to get something out of a specific election, that there are checks and balances in place. You know, right now, uh, the kind of political makeup of the election conspiracy theories is, is one way, but in 100 years, it, it could be something different. So we consider this to just be a foundational element of a good election administration system in any kind of party-based democracy. And also, it, it, we find it important that anytime there are ballots or voting equipment, not only is one individual never alone with that sensitive voting material, but that whenever possible, there be representatives from both parties. We also find that in terms of public messaging, research has shown that communicating to voters that 
there is bipartisan involvement of election workers at every step of the election process is critical in developing trust from voters in elections and election results. So it's both a security protection and something that helps develop public trust. It is a little bit challenging, like you said, with the geographic isolation. Uh, one just kind of interesting component that we've seen develop over the last couple of months is that more and more we see the RNC taking a slightly more aggressive role in recommending temporary election workers to election offices. Um, and we think this is great. Uh, like Grace said, there is often a, uh, a lack. It, it's challenging for election offices to recruit the sheer number of poll workers that we need on a regular basis. So we've seen the RNC kind of taking a bigger step and, and, and submitting long lists of names to local election offices. There are two drawbacks here, one being that in kind of democratic heavy jurisdictions that have poll workers that have been serving for years, because of partisan parity requirements, if a bunch of new Republican workers are being recommended, some of those longstanding democratic election workers have to be kind of you know removed. They don't get the opportunity to serve as a poll worker because those spots have to be offered first to the other party. Um, I think there are benefits and drawbacks there, but just one thing to keep in mind is that as we go into November, if you have individuals who are brand new to serving as a poll worker and don't necessarily understand how it all works, there could be some additional hiccups. Also, we saw in, in Maricopa County, the local RNC sent a letter complaining to Maricopa, basically saying that they didn't have exact partisan parity in the breakdown of election workers, despite the fact that they had sent a very long list of names to the county. What we saw, though, was that the county did attempt to reach out to and recruit everyone on that list. But most of those folks didn't realize that to be a temporary election worker in Maricopa County, you have to go to two days of training. Um, you have to sign up for these long shifts. It, it, it's a serious commitment. Um, and so in some cases, folks just aren't prepared for what it really means to be a temporary election worker. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, in balancing the, the, the you know, the time commitment for especially part-time poll workers. What is the range of, of training commitment hours that you've seen among states? Uh, does it vary all that much or is it is the two-day training that you mentioned in Maricopa County pretty typical? So the two-day training is, um, I would say, not typical. Um, that is one of the, the more extensive trainings that, that we saw in our research. And it really does vary by, by state and in some cases by municipality. 
um, in some states, the secretary of states or the chief election office will um, provide guidelines or you know, online training modules that counties can adopt for, for training their poll workers if they, if they choose. In other states, training is mandatory at the state level, but, you know, maybe it's only a few, a few hours or, or a day. I think that it, as, as Rachel noted earlier, um, it really depends on funding because in states that pay poll workers to attend training, that's going to be a little bit of a, uh, a budget constraint um, because if they're paying for two days of training, that's going to be much more expensive than paying for, say, a couple of hours. Um, so we saw that training does vary widely based on, based on the state and, like I said, based on the municipality. Yeah, I think one interesting component there is also looking at who is doing the training. Uh, So in some states, all of the training is conducted by the election office itself. We consider that to be a best practice when it comes to making sure that election officials are getting consistent quality information. But in some areas without adequate resources to perform training at the state or local level, that responsibility falls to the local party. And they are often given materials and, and you know rules of the road for how that training should take place by the state or locality. But we still consider it to be a best practice for that training to come from the election office itself whenever possible. But again, that, that comes down to resources and making sure that that office can do that without it interfering with other election operations. And Rachel, uh, speaking of best practices, I'm curious about the oaths that you mentioned. Um, what do some of these oaths sound like? Again, is there variance state by state? Do they differ that much from the oath of office taken by um, elected officials, for example? And then finally, you know, how have these, uh, you know, taking an oath uh, been shown to ensure election integrity among temporary poll workers? That's a great question. And and we include a, a couple examples in a report. If, if folks want to want to go look it up, it's fortifying election security through poll worker policy. But but they are quite, quite similar to the O's of office that are in place uh, across, you know, public administration. But they typically involve just, you know, committing that I do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of this state and that I will faithfully discharge the duties of the office according to the best of my ability. That's a quote from the the Michigan uh, Constitution, Oath of Public Officers. We find, have heard from our local election officials that we work with, that that step, that, that, you know, swearing under oath that you will uphold the laws and the constitution of that state does kind of discourage any individual from acting in a way that would undermine our government or our democracy, because I think it means something to people to take an oath of office in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. So, so yeah, those, those are a couple of the, the, the examples there. One thing that I think is, is worth noting is that while an oath of office is, is, is critical, we really encourage local and state offices to have like a clear terms of employment. So that's like an official contract dictating what is and is not allowed, very specific whenever possible. So Michigan has really clarified its rules around both election observation and poll workers since the 2020 election. And they have now in very clear terms that like, if you in any way interfere with the orderly conduct of an election, you will be dismissed. This is how that dismissal takes place. These are what your remediation options are if you disagree with the dismissal. Um, But we think that whenever possible, complementing that like both high level 
oath of office, commitment to the Constitution, et cetera, with the more specific terms of employment is really critical to pushing back against some of these insider threats. Yeah. And, and so in, in addition to that recommendation, Grace, I wonder if you could take us through a few more of your sort of bottom line recommendations to state election administration officials to really shore up election security among poll workers. Certainly. So one that we haven't uh, touched on in in this podcast yet is um, protecting election workers from threats, harassment and intimidation. Um, So as you mentioned in the the intro, Tyler, I think we've seen this influx of um, threats and intimidation to election workers um, across the board. And um, we think that in order for temporary election workers to perform their job with integrity, they need to feel protected and safe in their roles. Um, So we've seen a couple of instances of states uh, that have passed laws that increase legal protections for election workers, including temporary election workers or poll workers. Um, We've seen in Colorado increased protections against um, doxing uh, for election workers. And we've also seen laws passed in Maine, as well as Oregon. And we think that these laws, uh, along with increased attention sort of at the at the federal level from the Department of Justice, um, that these will serve as a first step towards deterring and safeguarding our elections from threats. Um, some of the other uh, recommendations that, that we make are to ensure that there, as Rachel said, that there are clear sort of processes for um, for the removal of poll workers. Um, in some states, it's very, very difficult to uh, remove a poll worker who um, is either you know acting out or not fulfilling their duties. Um, so we are recommending that states really really clarify and and make it possible to remove these workers if it's necessary. And then I think that we, um, in addition to sort of partisan parity requirements, we want to encourage states to, you know, incentivize uh, election workers um, who are who have who have done it before to have that sort of institutional knowledge. We've heard from some states that, you know, up to 70 percent of their election workers um, come back or return year after a year to to be poll workers or temporary election workers. And we think that uh, it, it makes sense to um, have a balance of experience as well as a balance um, of, of partisanship. Now, Rachel, you know, as as Grace just mentioned, we have these well-researched recommendations and we have some some model states. What roadblocks are we facing to implement these best practices and these recommendations across the country? And sort of as a, as a quick follow-up to that question, is this a partisan issue? As you mentioned, you know, there seem to be issues, you know, typical to one party, but, you know, as you mentioned, in 100 years, it could flip. Um, so what are the roadblocks here? And, and are, are some of those partisan or not? Fear with how we are currently talking about insider threats is that it is making it a partisan issue when it absolutely should not be. Um, We intentionally frame this report as about security because at the end of the day, that is what it is. Insider threats are a threat to the security of our election administration system. And if, you know, Republicans want a more secure election system with integrity, they should be vigilant about implementing best practices and policy to prevent against insider threats. So we are working kind of actively to foster those bipartisan conversations. But I do I do fear a little bit that that given the kind of divisive nature of 
media and how we talk about elections issues, um, that it's going to be more challenging to find that middle ground moving forward. Some of the, the roadblocks, one interesting example that was just coming to mind as Grace was talking um, about the difficulty in some places of removing poll workers. Uh, so in Pennsylvania, the, the individuals that are in charge of precincts, three out of five of those positions are constitutionally elected offices at the precinct level, and they cannot be removed unless they are impeached. <laughs> and so because they're elected, it, it, it makes it extremely difficult for anyone to remove them from office. And so if we have an individual who is, you know, violating the law or fueling election fraud conspiracies, they would effectively have to remain in power. So that's a constitutional provision, very difficult to change in Pennsylvania. But, but you know, you just kind of have to hope that the process of elections works out and, and the individuals in those positions are, are committed to sustaining democracy. I think another uh, challenging component is there's been a lot of coverage about Nevada recently, which has had extreme turnover in its election workers. Uh, and it's kind of the new epicenter of a lot of uh, election conspiracies. One county, uh, Nye County, is even trying to hand count all of its elections, which is, that's that's a whole nother uh, issue, but, but basically sowing chaos in the election administration system. And it has been more challenging for them to retain poll workers just because of how controversial the election process has gotten. And when you have all of these rapidly changing rules and discussion about how elections are run, it's discouraging poll workers from, from coming back or from staying involved, specifically in that state, but, but in others as well. Anecdotal research or anecdotal reports from election offices have, have also reported that the nature of the increase of threats to election workers and temporary election workers has also discouraged poll workers from, from coming back and, and supporting elections just because it is so volatile. And I think people are, are rightfully afraid that if they come and they, they are a poll worker and something happens that they could be, you know, put on the national spotlight and, and vilified it, like we have seen done so many times with, with the individuals at the forefront of our, of our democracy. Other than to, of course, remind people to get out there and vote on uh, Tuesday, November 8th, November 8th uh, or earlier if, you, if you're an early voter. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add from, from your report or, you know, about election integrity uh, in general? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, as Rachel just said, we're seeing sort of many of the faces of our elections sort of vilified. And I think that we don't always realize, you know, how much these individuals uh, have to do, you know, recruiting, training poll workers. Um, that's just one part of an election official's job. You know, there's there's so many other facets to it. So I would encourage listeners to, you know, learn a little bit more about election administration. Get in touch with your local election officials. See if there's anything that you can do to to help. I think that that being being a poll worker is a really uh, eye opening and, and amazing experience. But if you want to, uh, you know, observe elections, there are a number of ways that you can that you can get involved. Additionally, I think that we need to, um, you know, as we as we go go through this um, the the twenty twenty two midterms, I think that we need to to think a little bit more about poll worker policy and what we can do to ensure that we uh, we have the safeguards across the board in every state, as we've 
we've discussed thinking through um, what training should look like and how do we adequately prepare these individuals to serve as poll workers on election day um, is something that we should think about, um, you know, going into the 2023 legislative session, um, along with really universalizing those those codes of conduct and thinking through um, dismissal policies. Thanks, Grace. And, and, and I'll also jump in there that I think, you know, anyone listening to this podcast probably has a, a pretty high level of, of political awareness. But I just caution that those couple days and, and, and weeks after the midterm election uh, are probably going to be a little bit contentious. I think we're going to have issues with the certification of the vote. Um, I think in many, any kind of high profile, very tight race in which the margin is, is below 2%, we're going to have those results be contested. Um, and that's going to get play in the national spotlight. And I would just caution folks to wait it out and, and trust the process and know that once everything works itself out, we will have the individuals who won those elections put in power, rightfully so. I think one other thing to remember is that the election officials that are responsible for our elections at the state and local levels, those are your family, your friends, your neighbors, they're the people you see at the grocery store. Um, I think personalizing them is really important, both in how we see elections and how we talk about it. And so when it does get contentious, that, that we're able to come back to those individuals as the trusted sources of election information. Um, and just remembering that there are so many more reasons to trust the process than, than ever before. Really, in, in many ways, security is better now than it has been in, in a long time. So, so trust those folks and, and keep the faith. Well, there you go. Get to know your friendly neighborhood poll worker. Grace and Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us, Tyler. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com, and while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.